Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week has been in the sports gambling business for the last 23 years, working on both sides of the counter. He worked for the biggest horse racing syndicate in the world. Wind up being at Ladbrokes and is currently the vice president of trading for BetMGM. Please welcome Jason Scott. Jason, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Spanky. It's a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine, Jason. So I like to always start, Jason, how was life growing up? Yeah, look, I, I grew up in Australia in a, a pretty middle-class sort of background, and I I was always mathematically literate. Numbers were always my thing, and, and from that, uh, betting and sport. My father loved the horse races, and he, he took me to the races from a very young age, so my earliest memories were following him around the betting ring. And uh, the Australian racing is a little bit different to the US. We follow the UK model where it is fixed odds bookmaking. So from a very young age, I knew what it was to have um, to, to to understand betting and to and to be part of it. I sort of got through school, uh, ran into some like-minded people, and uh, I've been interested and involved in in being involved in betting and bookmaking my whole life, really. Yeah, that's beautiful. A lot of people start off their gambling career with pops taking them to the racetrack or uh, taking them to a ball game and maybe having a little bit of action, helping them fill out a parlay card or whatever. So that's a great, you know, I, I, I hear that that's a common trait to kind of plant that initial seed with most people that brings them to fall in love with this. Did you kind of know that, you know, from an early age that this is the career path you were going to be on or you just knew you wanted to be involved in numbers? Look, I, I probably did know deep down, but I finished school and um, and then studied and ended up working in finance, which I suppose um, was the path that I probably thought I should do. It was the conservative path to, to, to an income, to a life. Uh, I, I finished school in 1988. 1988 in Australia, there really, other than betting for yourself, there really wasn't a pathway. Um, to to do that, you know, bookmaking was very difficult to get in. You needed a very large bank. There wasn't big corporations. So I sort of followed that pathway through. And I was about 28, 29 years old. I call it a uh, midlife crisis, but I was working in finance with some guys much older than me that were very well paid, but they were miserable. They hated it. And I could see I was following the same path. Um, I was really lucky that I, I had a supportive partner and I said to my wife, we'd only just got married, that time I tried something different and she said, what do you like? I said, betting. <laughs> said, How are you going to make a go of that? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm not sure, but give me give me 12 months and we'll, and we'll, and we'll work it out from there. And if not, if, if it fails, I have to go back to finance. There's plenty of jobs. And look, I, I haven't looked back. And, uh, and I tell my kids right now, I said, don't worry about, don't, when you're making career decisions, don't think about money. Just make sure it's something that you enjoy. I think that's really key. That is beautiful. So, man, so working in finance, you were 28. So right after graduating university, you were really deep into finance. Did you see a lucrative career coming up? You said you worked with a lot of guys that are senior to you that were making a lot of money, but you weren't thinking about money because it was you just looked as if it was going to be miserable for the rest of your life? Yeah, look, it's it's lifestyle quality. Um, you know, I, I spent more time looking at sports results globally, uh, racing results, form guides, those kind of things. 
I knew it was what I wanted to do. And I suppose it was really just a matter of, of having the courage and, and throwing throwing in a guaranteed income to, to step into the unknown. Wow. And, and what a great wife to be able, especially newly married. Uh, I kind of experienced the same thing where I told my wife, hey, listen, I'm going to go bet sports for a living. Uh, her, her family, my in-laws, my family, they all said, are you absolutely out of your mind? Yeah. Um, so did you get any pushback from anybody? Oh, my mother was horrified. <laughs> um, I bet. But, but, but look, I, I was confident. Look, I, I, interesting, we'll probably get into it. Within a couple of years of betting, betting for myself, working round tracks and that, I ended up taking a job with one of the, with what was then and still is now the biggest racing syndicate in the world. And frankly, it was that was because I needed some money to borrow a house. So with what I was earning, I was winning, but I wasn't winning enough to, to, to buy houses and cars and whatever else. So I did, I did like the security of a job. And, and I've learned a lot over the years that, you know, that, that helped me get started. Those, those, those two years on a racetrack, living for myself, it was great fun. I made money, probably just not as much as I would have liked. Great. So is, did you, did you, would it, would it be safe to say that you took a pay cut, um, work betting for yourself from when you were left your finance job or? You take a pay cut, but you pay less tax too in Australia. We don't, um, gotcha. the, the, the tax and the revenue office aren't probably quite as obtrusive as they are in America. So, you know, you're dealing in cash and you're surviving. But, you know, well, don't you worry. I have my ups and downs. Gotcha. And so so, so that was such a big move. So you, you're, you're betting, you're, you're, and this is just horses, sports, or both are you betting? Uh, predominantly horses, but we're, but that was thoroughbreds, harness racing and, and greyhounds, the greyhounds industry. And look, I dabble in sports, but I, I prefer I preferred the animals. Beautiful. Okay, so now you're 30 years old. How, what how, opportunity? Now, listen, any, I know I'm pretty sure anybody would love to be able to land a job working for the biggest horse racing syndicate in the world. Um, how do you land that job? How does that come about? What con did you have to make a connection? Is describe the interview process because that must have been amazing. The, the, interview, the interview process is effectively a test. It's a numbers test, understanding odds, understanding racing. And, and they tell me that about 99.5% of people fail. Wow. And once, and once, once I passed that, that test, it was a really quick, um, he, it's, you know, I, I don't know how well Jocko is known in, in, in America, but if I, if I can just go back in, go back to what we were doing when I left, I stayed there from about 2004 to 2011 and 12, we were betting hard. He was betting harness racing across probably 20 tracks in the U S all the thoroughbreds. We were betting in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, and he's and he's then he's into Europe, in the UK, France, Germany, Sweden, down into South Africa. And I know he just keeps growing, and he he's got he's got a really measured system, working on tiny margins, but tiny margins are fine if you can get enough handle a day. Um, and he he he's I learned so much in, in that period about thinking about how the public think and fading the public in a different way to what's obvious, uh, understanding pricing, understanding when you're right and when you're wrong. I think the most basic thing that I learned there is that if we price the horse three to one and the market's five to one, that's an overlay and we should bet up. If we price the horse three to one and the market's 14 to one, we're probably wrong. 
So our return investment was, you know, that was one of the main things I was taught, the closer you get. If you're way out of the market, no matter how good you are, no matter how many analytics, you know, I believe you might have six or 700 people working for that, that syndicate now. And, and they're the smartest guys in the world in, in terms of horse racing. But you've also got to know when you're wrong, acknowledge when you're wrong and not, not bat, just battle on and fall in love with your numbers. And that's very hard for a lot of people to do. What a beautiful thing right there. Respect the market. Even the world's biggest uh, gambler, um, Jelko, as you said, will even would, would know to humble himself and say, you know what, I, I'm not always right and I know when to take a step back. That's absolutely amazing just to hear that. Um did you ever meet Jelko? How how was the firm yeah. like? Like describe yeah, no, it. No, no, look, he's, he's very well known. He's a very reclusive guy, uh, and I've actually met him more times since I worked for him in different roles that I've had than we did. We did. Um, he had a we had an office in um, in Sydney in Australia, and basically pretty much the size of a cinema screen. And you sit around there, and you've got ten of you, ten of you reviewing races. We we sort of you work mainly from home and remotely. Back when I was there, I think it's all there now. But you'd bring people in and you have 10 of you around a remote, uh, big cinema screen, watching races, identifying things the way he wanted to. And I remember a couple of times just sitting there thinking, what a world, what a great world, what a great place. Um, so, yeah, it was, look, you were very strict. You know, you got your, the numbers, your results, you had his expectations. But his processes, and one of the things he said that he taught, and I've become a little bit the same way, is... Um, which is, again, is different to the way things are done in America. I probably don't want it. He didn't want opinions. He wanted you to do things his way, what you think you know, forget it. If you're not willing to do that, don't walk through the door. Uh, and I tend to find the same, certainly with with trading. I probably, in America, et cetera, I don't, I, I've got a whole bunch of traders working me. I don't really care who they think will win. Uh, I'm a big believer in the market, following the market. If they're good and their opinions are good enough, you probably don't want to be working for me. You want to be, you don't want to have to turn up from whatever shift I give you or whatever time you've got to work. You can have the have the uh, freedom of going to work for yourself and, and do that. Um, respect the market is everything that I've learned from him, and and that's the way we trade at BetMGM, and the way I found works the best. Beautiful. So um, you you worked for Jelko for nine years. Yeah, I did nine years there, mainly working on harness racing, Australian and US. In fact, pretty much almost all, uh, which was really good because probably the racing codes, it was the one I had the least interest in. So it was easier not to um, to put your own opinion in because if you're watching races, and it's very difficult for people who have had a bet not to, when they're going back and reviewing a race afterwards, people subconsciously can't admit that they're wrong. And so if you're watching a race and you're analysing, you're doing the post-race work, it's very hard not to go in with the opinions that you already had and to go in with a complete blank slate and treat every horse as though you've never seen it before because you grow opinions, you know. Look, this thing's weak on the line. It never hits the line. You know, this one's got no acceleration. It'll just keep one batting away. And being able to forget that and not follow it closely, which is why I like particularly working on American racing when I was in Australia because I wasn't following it closely. I was doing my work for him, forgetting it, and then going and betting on the Australian racing for myself. Beautiful. How big, when you were first started working for Jelko, how big was the group at that point? Yeah, look, the, the man is described in various media as secretive, reclusive, all of, any sort of adjective like that. Understanding the scale in the departments other than that you're in that business, it was like the Secret Service or Fight Club where, you know, we, you don't talk about it, you know, your own little thing. 
uh, I'd signed that many um, secrecy um, contracts, which was great, which was fine. But look, my, my, from speaking to people, I think we probably ended up with about 300, 300 staff by the time I left, which I think might have doubled. So Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's a big operation. It's crazy because I always, you know, in the sports betting that we're, that we're in, we're a drop in a bucket compared to what the horse racing guys uh, do, you know, the professional horse racing guys. They absolutely just control their, they print, it's like they have a printing press. Well, if you, get, if you get big enough spank, you can get a big head start with the rebates. Yeah. You know, you know yeah. if, if, if you can get a 6% rebate, well, you can make money losing a 4%, can't you? So even though you've got a, a bigger over, over round to beat, um, you know, he Jelko now bet fair and those kind of things. The Jelko and the other three or four syndicates, they're they're all paying zero commission there because they're seeding the lay side. So so there's more than one way to make your money. You don't always have to win. Would you say in this day and age, most horse racing syndicates can they still make money without the rebate? Oh, they can. It's like sport. You know, I I only know roughly what you do, but. But you've obviously, you know, you've, you've got the analytics, the information that's there compared to, what, 20 years ago when I started, imagine 50 years ago. I mean, the bookmakers had it all, really, didn't they, compared to now in terms of player information, the data, you know, the syndicates here. They can, you can certainly make money. So the rebates is gravy. And it's a nice, it's a nice bit of gravy. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And look, depending on the scale of your rebates, you might change your model. You know, you might you might want to win. You might be wanting to double your turnover and go from winning three percent to losing one percent if you can get a seven percent rebate. Of course, is out there. So it's managing to that, and um, it sounds silly, but that's how good some of these racing syndicates are. And you know, you've got the parimutuel, you've got your guaranteed, you've got all the pools. They they can beat the twenty five percent takeout in the the exactors, pick fours, etc. You know, and again, I'm fascinated by the race because this is not what, what, what I do. So just to, I just want to dive a little deeper. Given the paramutual part of it, you know, would a racing syndicate be inclined to bet as close to, 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 to post as possible um, so that they essentially know what kind of odds they're going to be getting? Um, is that usually the generic basic strategy or no? I think there's two types of syndicates. There's, there's the normal syndicate and there's the Jolko syndicate, you know. Jocko's, they start the price he wants them to. He knows how big the pool's going to get. He knows how big it is. And then he'll drip feed it on to subterfuge to get people, you know, to what it is. Uh, the normal syndicate, they tend to probably bet a little bit early because you've got to seed the pool um, and, or, and then sort of you try and dribble it on because if you if you drop, drop it all in late and the two other major syndicates betting in your jurisdiction, jurisdiction drop it all in late. You're all on the same horses. You can end up with some filthy prices. Gotcha. <laughs> oh man, such such cool stuff, Jason. I love it. Um, so man, this is so nine years. You know, listen, ninety nine point five percent fail rate. Um, for you to be able to land a gig like that is um. Man, why would you ever leave? Like, it just looked it's so good. And, and did they take, you know, again, um, I'm assuming you got taken care of being there for nine years. Pretty. Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. Look, they're very generous people to work for. I think it's time for a change. You know, gotcha. I, um, I, it was a great job for me there. I had, had children fairly early in my um, career at Jelko's. And look, while I'm, while I'm certainly um, 
not the most domesticated human. I was working from home. My wife was working, so I'd look after the kids. I think I think I probably needed to, to get out to get into an office to meet people. I wasn't say I wouldn't say I was going stale, but I, I'd certainly I needed a change. Uh, an opportunity came up to work for um, the um, uh, the uh, Tats Group, which in Queensland, which was a state of Australia, I was in. They had the exclusive retail license and ran the paramutual tool court. And so, you know, an exclusive retail license in a state of, uh, well, they actually had three states, probably to a population of about 8 million people. It's another license to print money. Fixed odds, they'd always, they'd always um, only offer paramutual betting. They were just moving into fixed odds racing. So they probably, they probably started maybe 12, 18 months before I came across. So I moved across there, um, and you know it was a, it was a new thing in Australia, and uh, incredibly interesting to me to be the guy setting the line instead of the guy that was betting. That was, to be honest, that's the best two two to three years of my my career. Just just the interest in doing something new it hadn't really been done. We were still learning how to do it. I loved it. So you worked for this uh, horse, I guess. The uh, tra- uh, you said the exclusive license, a horse. Uh, uh... What do they call that? It's the horse bookmaker? Or... Yeah, well, they were horse and sports. So we had a horse sports arm. Um, but, yeah, I was working only in the racing side. Beautiful. So, okay, um, just to end on Jelko. Jelko, I hear, is one of the nicest guys out there. And um, so yeah. for anybody that's listening, he's one of the – just because he's one of the best gamblers in the world, he's an unbelievably incredible guy, everything I hear. Incredible story. Uh, you know, it's, it's fairly well. He's worth Googling they started uh, counting cards in a small casino in Australia and moved up and up and up the, the syndicate, yeah. as it's called. It's just an amazing story. Yeah, he's one of the best out there. And, um, you know, uh, from, you know, everything that, uh, yeah, he's one of the best. Okay, so, all right, so, so now you're, 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 you're the main guy now. So, you know, obviously, um, I'm sure that, you know, working for Jelko, it's pretty easy now to pretty much go anywhere. Uh, to get a job and, and and you're the main guy and you said it's the best three years of your career. Um, we're talking what what years are these that you're actually it's running the races? Probably, probably, it's probably only two years, 10 and 11 or 11 and 12. Gotcha. It was 11 and 12. So sort of, we were there um, and it, it, look, it was just great fun. Really something new, something new to the industry. The customers liked it. And this is really when digital sports betting in Australia was starting to take off. Uh, there was a couple of really big players. And ironically, the biggest player in Australia is a company called Sportsbet that's 100, 100% owned by Flutter. And they're the group that 100% owned FanDuel. So uh, I was probably spent the last 15 or 12 years of my life uh, chasing FanDuel or chasing Flutter to, uh, to, to lead a market because... I still think they're the, they're, they are the best bookmaker in the world in terms of the digital side. Beautiful. So, okay, so 2012 passes. Now you kind of finally were able to cross over to the other side of the counter. Um, you got you feel as if you have a knack for this. What next, Jason? So I got an offer for to, to run the trading for a small startup that was called bookmaker.com.au. And we, we were um, the, the guy that was the CEO there and provided a lot of the capital was a, a serial entrepreneur, a guy by the name of Dean Shannon. Uh, and Dean was ahead of his time in terms of marketing, um, affiliate behaviour, how to how to work. He, he's just he thinks a step before the rest of us. Um, so he he started he was starting this company, and um, 
I, I sort of got in touch with him. And so I started working for him for this bookmaker.com and about, I reckon we'd only been running 15, 18 months. So somewhere in 2013, uh, he sold the company to Labrokes UK. And so we, we then became Labrokes Australia. So I stayed as trading director there until probably the back end of 2016. And then when Dean left, I became the CEO there. So I, I did um, three years as the CEO. When I left, we probably had about 400 staff and were doing about well, the equivalent of three and a half, four billion, four billion US handle. So we, we, we sort of came up to digitally, we were number three in the market, but um, it was a great ride and I, I really enjoyed it. Wow, amazing. Ladbrokes, world known name um, amongst um, all over the world. Ladbrokes is one of the bigger boys out there. So, you know, you, you start off as director of trading. Um, and then, like you said, when Dean retires, you become the CEO. Um, did you want to, was that just a natural role for you to go into the CEO position? Or yeah. it kind of was, you know, there's nobody else that, that's, that's competent. You're, uh, you probably hit it right on the head. I, I probably call myself the accidental CEO. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't aspire to that sort of that role. I, look, I like the trading. I like the marketing, things like the tech and the legal side. I, and I like the finance, sorry, but things like the tech and the legal side. If we had 400 staff, I had 100 techs working there, and you know that that's it's certainly very challenging in an area where really I didn't have any expertise. Well, not didn't have any. Had zero expertise. Um, and I found it difficult because I'd always sort of worked in areas where I knew I knew what needed to be done. Whereas when you've got to be 100% reliant on other people uh, to the sort of scale, and you know we're, we're still answering the head office back in the UK. Um, I enjoyed the role, but I think I think three years was enough. Uh, and uh, lab breaks for, uh, for people that don't know, they were, they were, in, during that period they were bought out by a company called GVC, which turned itself into Entain. And Entain are the company that have got the 50% joint venture uh, with MGM and BetMGM. So ironically, this is how I ended up over here with BetMGM. Back in, I mentioned in 2013, the startup was bought for Labrokes. The, the gentleman that came over from Labrokes UK to, to, to do the deal, to buy us out, was a gentleman called Adam Greenblatt. Adam's now the CEO of BetMGM. And Adam and I had stayed in touch and we'd worked work together on a couple of acquisitions in the in the next six or seven years. So he, he was the one that rang me to um, suggest that I come over here, which initially I was a little bit resistant to, but, um, you know, I'm glad I did now. I sort of thought about it for 24, 36 hours and figured, well, I'm working in a, a consolidated, mature market in Australia of 24, 25 million people, and there's 330 million people in the US, and a majority of them have seen sports betting before, so it was sort of too big an opportunity for me not to not to take at that stage of my career. Wow. All right. So you, you take the MGM position and, and, and you start off as, as the head of trading, essentially. Um, yeah. You're, 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 run, you're the running the numbers. Now, um, this, you know, I'd like to hear just what were the biggest shock and the differences of like, okay, you're saying, okay, you know, you've never really dealt really American sports for the most part, or you've never seen the American uh, based model or even just the American odds. The, the format is different. Um, what are the biggest changes? What, what are the biggest shocks to you um, that like that you could, that, that surprised you? What did, what did you see that you expected? What, you know, just, I'd like to describe uh, yeah. uh, if you could describe just br take us down how, uh, how it is coming into such a new market. 
Yeah, look, I, I think when I first got here, the, the biggest challenge initially was the internal machinations, uh, working working together with a joint venture. Of, you know, I don't think I'm being unfair to say that Enzhain and MGM probably both had different philosophies uh, in in their, their overall uh, global philosophy. So getting working through that, working through through the technologies and having different different platforms for digital and retail. Um, Retail, and, and, and you know the thing that surprised me the biggest here is how how big people bet on college sports. Given really for the first first six weeks of the season, we're talking about a whole different bunch of players to what we had last year. Whole different um, strategy. It's all you know. It's it's all the processes and the fact that people are wanting to bet six figures and that so early in the season when really. They don't know that much compared to what the, you know, any sort of other league in the world, even betting on something I know nothing about, like uh, Russian ice hockey. We kind of know the teams, 95% of players roll into next year. You can see the difference. Uh, that that was the biggest shock to me initially. Uh, in terms of the way things are done, look, we we came over here and I don't I don't think it's unfair to say that I needed to, we changed quite a lot of the processes. Uh, internally, let's just talk about Vegas and the and the nine properties we have there. Uh, I don't think we were working at an optimum level. We needed to change a few things, and look, they work. We um we had the best ever year in Vegas last year that MGM's had in there had had since they've been running sportsbook over many years ago. That wasn't we we probably we've not probably we made uh, more than sixty five percent more than we'd ever made in Vegas, and that was just tweaking a couple of things the way the way we did things. Um, Let's get let's get into some of those tweaks if you don't mind. I'd love yeah. to hear them because that's a pretty big that's a pretty big increase. Um and and uh, so you know if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, look, I think I, I look. I don't want to be critical of those that came before me. No, but, but that's okay. But you listen, you have so much experience, so why not? Yeah. It, it, and yeah. look, I, I I think I think I think sports betting within within some of the computers, and I've heard this word. I was all seen almost as an amenity. Uh, the idea was not to lose. It was just there to keep the table games players and the slot, ma- slot machine players happy uh, and, and probably wasn't given the respect that it should. And there wasn't that that push or understanding to win. And because of that, I think we saw some cautious bookmaking. I think if I'm not a big believer, and I, I'm not sorry, I'm not a big believer. I don't, I don't have any plan in, in old-fashioned bookmaking in balancing a book. Uh, I believe that the market is the market. The market is now equally as sophisticated as a foreign exchange trading market, and that starts from people like yourself who might want to bet early in the week, the other sharps, and and trust it. Bet bet the right price. We at BetMGM, again going back to our digital, we're going to offer three and a half million markets this year, uh, if you include all the sub markets and props, etc. I've got no interest in evening those up, but what I have got interest in doing is working out who the sharp guys are, uh, betting betting what I think is the balanced price, and when we can take two-way action at the end, so be it. We I have a pretty strict policy that, you know, I, I know it gets a lot of criticism on social media is I don't want to take big bets early in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so while the price and so while the price is still illiquid, it's still getting there. We have pretty we have very tight limits. Certainly in terms of the retail, uh, I'm happy to bet in the last couple of hours as big as anybody in the business. You know, we lost 
just the one, you know, we get a lot of criticism in terms of who we will bet. You know, probably one of the biggest advantage players and most well-known advantage players in America won 800,000 off us on conference championship weekend. You know, if, if people want to bet late when the markets, they want to say late, day of, whatever, we're happy to bet. I think previously at some of our properties, there was a, a fear of losing it, but perhaps we were not perhaps. We, we bet the wrong prices late to try and balance a book, which goes against everything I did. You know, I, I as I said to someone, one of the executives at our in our business, um, if if you if you if you're in the high rollers room and someone's got a million on red, you don't bet plus one ten black to try and attract money on a roulette table. And I think we used to do that a little bit, which um, didn't help us. But look, there was that. I don't think the marketing. We've certainly got a much bigger marketing budget now in terms of getting people in. And then just just being comfortable with with some days we're going to lose and other days we're going to win. I think that that was the main change we had and just that that small nuance on pricing. Trust the trust the market. Trust the sharp guys. Trust the people that know what they're doing. Understand who who are the experts in certain areas and and follow them. Oh, that's great. So, well, I want to dissect a couple of those things. Um, so, you, you know, the, you know, there were two, you know, I, I, I understand your philosophy, no big bets early in the week. We're talking mostly football here because obviously the, the sharps and the, and the lines are a lot yeah. softer early in the week. And then, of course, the markets are so much more mature on game day. Um, so let, you know, let, let's talk about, you know, how MGM, because, you know, obviously MGM is, is, is uh, known, you know, for limiting sharp players. Um, yeah. And um, so how are you able to kind of do because sharp profiling, I think for every single sports book um, for them to be able to not leave money on the table to try to get as much as you can adequate sharps profiling is, is essential. And they probably didn't do that as well in the past as, as, as you're saying that you could do now. So, you know, how, you know, but at the same time, um, you want to be able to book a bet and give a, a, a pop to be able to get that information. But some of the limits at MGM have gone to be, uh, you know, they're very low. Let's let's you know, like we're talking, yeah. you know, 10, 12, 15 grocery dollars. So how do you how do you you know what do you say to that? And yeah. is, is there so, a, a I, thing I that changes? So if we're talking digitally, we're we're running nineteen properties and we might have three hundred thousand actives. And if we were to bet, if we bet everybody else to five as a price change on non best, we, we might have an odds to five. We might have odds to half a million as everybody that comes in because look we. Our profiling and technological profiling, I would, I'd say, is adequate. It's not brilliant. But we found situations where customers have 240, 260 accounts. They're the ones we found. There's plenty of others that don't. And and we what we have done in terms of profiling, so that when we see that every one of these people bet at the same time, we, we do limit them. And, and I, I acknowledge that at times it does go too far. Um, and that's something that, Without making excuses, there is a technological chart technology challenge that we need to fix. Um, look, I'm 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 on Twitter. If people tell me that that, that they are uh, being being limited to grocery dollars, I'm happy to have a look at it. But a lot of the time, when we find that, we find that they are accounts with people with multiple accounts all betting at the same time. They're they're either um, bots or something else that everyone lands at the same time. Yeah, we do we do limit those and perhaps we have gone too far. And as I said, I'm I'm happy to look at all, any of those on a case by case basis. All right. Well that's fair. I appreciate that, Jason. Um 
We could start with my account. No, I'm just having the talk, Spanky. Yeah. <laughs> but, we just um, got to find an amount that's uncomfortable for you because it's too low and uncomfortable for me because it's too big. Yeah, that's probably the right number. Yeah, that, that's it. Exactly. You want to give a number. You know, I, I think people, the, any listeners out there, you got to understand, you know, somebody like Jason wants to find out the information as cheap as possible. And we want to give out the information uh, uh, and make them pay the, the highest price. But but there's a middle ground between bookmaker and better, and I think that to try to find that middle ground is um is essential. So you know MGM historically for for us when you know, when I used to have runners in Vegas and stuff, it used to be op- You know they used to take thirty thousand on NFL football on the Monday at, at at twelve noon Pacific, which is when they opened up the games. Um, and then the, that that thirty thousand was consistent throughout. That was the house limit. Of course, you could always ask for more, but that was the number that was consistent throughout the whole week. Things have changed now. You're telling me that you know what you're going to start off a lot lower than that. But come yeah. game day, you're not a you're, you're, you're giving you're, you could give guys three four hundred thousand if they're the right customer, correct? Yeah, and even if they're not necessarily the right customer, game day NFL. No, it's very hard to have an advantage on anyone by Sunday. And probably yeah. then, then when we're betting, yeah, happy to happy to bet, you know, as big as we like, you know. Whereas earlier in the week, now we think I'm thinking more like numbers of three and five in retail odds two, till we get closer. Certainly college. I mean, again, I can only look at the numbers. We get demolished on college till Thursday, you know. Gotcha. So, so I, we, I, I'm probably a lot more into the analytics than a lot of my predecessors. I understand where the money's coming. And look, I understand that there's a philosophy, and I, I see it on Twitter a lot that bookmakers have to be fair everyone needs to be you know give everyone a chance and that and that's fair but we also have to make money um the, the difference between a bookmaker and a better i've been on both sides is a better doesn't have to bet or offer prices in every game we do um and and look i'm 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 happy to to, to guarantee that we will bet odds to three odds to five early in the week and then regardless of who you are come sundays you know odds to odds that 30 number doesn't worry me in the slightest of, and we regularly take that are people getting more limits in person than on the app? Is that usually like a... Uh, um, no, I'd say it's the other way around. So the other way around. But there's more limits on the app. In person, we know who, who we're dealing with. Gotcha. On the app, as I said, we, we often see 20 bets come in concurrently for exactly the same thing. And every time these 20 accounts bet, they're betting exactly the same thing. And they're just the ones we find. Um, so they're those sort of accounts, we, we, we do limit. Did you ever think about implementing technology-wise an auto mover um, so that essentially only one person gets the line and then the second guy coming in will have to lay, let's just say, you know, an extra 10 cents or anything? I've got a lot of ideas that I could use technology-wise. The problem at the moment, there's a queue in technology and, and marketing's winning right now because it seems to be a national race to, to sign customers and whatever else. But uh, look, we are, and I think you'll see a lot of improvements with BetMGM in terms of our product and our ability to manage customers in the next 12 to 18 months. I think we've got a new team in running the product, and I think I think these guys are pretty sharp, and, and they'll get it right. But, yeah, I, I take your point. No, you make, you make a great point. No, I, I love it. I love hearing the philosophy. You know, listen, I always – look, and I'm, I'm very critical, you know what I mean, again. Um, but, of course, I'm, I'm – I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm speaking, I try to be objective, but at the same time, self-interest is, I'm not going to lie. You know what I mean? I, I need, I like to have a market to be able to play into. Um, and if I see, no, look, you know, I've worked on both sides. So look, I understand the criticism. I understand that it's less than a deal, but I think, I think we also need to understand that 
FanDuel, Caesars, DraftKings. I wouldn't say it's a different model, but we certainly do have, we are running things slightly differently to the traditional traditional Vegas way. Uh, I probably don't agree with everything that Jason Robbins has come out and said, but it, it, it is, we're not looking for a different customer base, but we are looking for the much broader, a customer who's interested in a much broader range of markets. You know, Super Bowl, less than 50% of our handle this year was um, in one of what we call the six-pack markets, the money line spread total. So that diversity that we're seeing nationally, there's a market for, but we need to also make sure that we are servicing the the regular guys that are, um, I call them hardheads, the guys that have been around understand understand what they're after. So, yeah. Oh, you man- we haven't done that as well as we could have. Are you looking like you know, you know? Let's just uh, just to be just to be straight out. Like, does a semi-pro or does a professional sports better? Will they have a home? Um, you know, in the next sixteen to eighteen months, whenever you guys want to sit, uh, twelve to eighteen months at BetMGM, or should they look elsewhere? Oh, look, I think they'll have a home, but I don't think they'll have a home at numbers like thirty thousand on a Monday that you were speaking. Oh yeah, no, and online it'll be shorter again because. Uh, it'll be smaller again, but I, th- I think certainly in our retail outlets, there's 100% a home. Okay, so so if somebody wants to bet professionally, you got to do it retail. You got to go I be in person. So, yeah. And as I said, we're we've got we're in about t- ten or eleven states retail wise now, but I, I, that that's where we, we want to play that size a lot of lot, lot, lot. We can control it. We can move markets quicker. We can see the money coming in. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned in Jelko, and I, I just wrote it down because I think it could apply here. Tiny margins are fine if you get enough handle. Uh, so, does you know, you know, would you ever think about saying, "Come one, come all, bring it all on"? You know, like let's just compare it to let's say the circa, um, where circa is not turning away anybody. Um, no. d- uh, tell me why that isn't the right method. I just, I. Well, I spoke to Matt, and I and I know what his margin was last year, and I know what our margin was. I also know, look, rightly or wrongly, costs of running a business are, are important here. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our competitors has got a billion dollar marketing budget. Uh, we're we're nowhere near that, but we've got a substantial we've got a substantial marketing budget as well. On top of that, we're paying fees. You know, the New York one's very well publicised. The fifty one percent tax that we're paying there. Uh, we're also paying significantly. There's other states at 30%, uh, and and we're paying huge fees to people like the NFL now for in terms of their, their, their data to allow us to, to keep betting. So I, I would have thought, and I'm not going to make myself popular with your listeners, that the circum model is going to be very difficult to continue at any scale because of just just these out these outward costs. Okay. Um, no, and that's fair. And, and a lot of people didn't even think they would last till now, which is pretty, uh, which is a, a yeah, look, I think they do a great job and I think they provide a great service. Um, and look, I can, I, we can offer that much more clearly in retail. The states where we have retail, the, ta- the tax regimes are a lot different to, to your Pennsylvanias, your New Yorks that are onerous is the nicest adjective I can come up with. Yeah. No, I, I, you make a great point, Jason, because I think that, you know, given your talent and your capabilities um, and, I, and, and nobody would ever want you, expect you to take big bets early in the week or expect you to, to put yourself in, a, in a, a bad position. But like you said, on game day, you know, you, you, people, I think any bookmaker, if you, if you, if you can't give 
you know, 10,000 on an NFL side on game day, uh, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but should you even be yeah. you know, operating in this business? Like, it's, no, 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 look, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. And look, yeah. we, we, I've just got, as I said, I, I understand that the technology that we've got doesn't allow that right now, but that's where I'm hoping to get to. Beautiful. Does the technology now kind of lim- blanket limit everyone? So you, is it a percentage basis? Because that's what I kind of noticed. Effectively what it is. Each, 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 each event has a limit. Each player has a limit. And um, and it's a multiple of that. And then obviously we have our limits structured so that the limits grow as you get closer to the game. Beautiful. Awesome. Great. I really hope, I wish you guys nothing but success. And I think you guys, uh, you know, given your, your expertise and your experience, I think that um, MGM has a bright future um, with respect to uh, to bookmaking and, and, and profitability. I know the name of the game, though, as you said, is marketing. Um, you know, it, it is uh, a billion dollar marketing budget. You said some of these competitors, absolutely amazing. Um, do you think there is, you know, essentially a race to the bottom? Like, will the money ever run out where this is, you know, the money will run out. The money has to run out. I mean, we saw DraftKings numbers last week. They lost mm. $946 million. Now that, that that's sustainable for X number of years. And X is probably ever diminishing numbers. We go into more States. Um, and, and tax rates reduced. I think right now, uh, the position we're at now is that the four or five big companies are in this huge acquisition mode, uh, bonusing at a level that isn't sustainable to a business that's going to make a money when I say bonusing free bets, etc., cetera, uh, and probably marketing it at that level. At some stage, someone has to move, whether it be a, a CEO or a board, has to move, and then I think everyone follows. Uh, there's a little bit of a copycat industry right now. It's fear of missing out, um, but it, it's 100% unsustainable. You know, DraftKings, well, I think they had a market cap, it got to 60 billion at some one stage, didn't it? And I haven't looked what happened today, Today, but, you know, it dropped 18%. Friday it was down to sort of 12 or $13 billion. So it, it's, it's not sustainable. Uh, shareholders are already starting to ask questions. I think the worst thing that happened in this country is that that market share, um, each state puts out a, a market share number in terms of handle and GGR each each month. And I think people being measured on that is the complete wrong model. I mean, GGR is basically how much you make, including bonus bets. The only thing that matters is how much you make excluding bonus bets because Bonus bets completely change that number, um, and handle well. Any 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 bookmaker worth his salt can get handle. You just bet 102 percent instead of 104 percent. You're doubling your handle. You can't eat handle. So I think I think we're using the wrong mechanics to judge success. And I think most of the large investment bankers and the, the stock markets and the industry commentators are coming to that assumption. And I think, I think that's good. And I think for guys like yourself uh, that want to bet, I think that we're going to get there quicker because it, it's 100% not sustainable. And Caesars obviously are a little bit late to the crew, uh, to the show, and they've come on and they're out shooting everybody in terms of um, generosity and bonuses and marketing spend. And, you know, as I said, I've been told they're going to spend a billion dollars this year. And I see, and I, it feels like that's the case. So how, how does, you know, being, you know, uh, the vice president of trading at MGM, 
what would you, what would you, you know, how would your company take a different approach to try to um, take a more sustainable approach and, and, and maybe change, change the way things are happening to, 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 you know, get as much market share or just how about making money? You know what I mean? Not, not, not losing money. Yeah. I look, I think you've got to take an approach. I think you've got to take an approach for state because we've got a whole bunch of states that are at different levels of maturity where Jersey is compared to where, to where New York is. Well, if you're not making money in Jersey three and a half, four years in, you're probably never going to make money. Now, if we continue on, you know, there are some states where we're already that, are, that we are cash positive in. But I think it's being a little bit more prudent with, with marketing spend. The marketing is everyone's biggest cost. And at some stage, you have to reduce that. Um, right now, I think it's a chase to get a database. And then we've all got fairly sophisticated CRM programs to try and... Um, attract deposits and the like. But I suspect if you had a look at DraftKings Fair join ourselves, that we've probably pretty much got all the same customers. You know, if you can get a $200 free bet for your $200, you deposit. Next time you got $200, are you going to deposit with me or are you going to go to FanDuel and deposit there? The reason FanDuel are winning and have got a better market share than, than ourselves and DraftKings is they have the best product. If I, if I was a better, I'd, if I was a better, I'd bet with them as well. The navigation is really sharp on their platform. Um, and their product is good and their pricing strong. So, you know, I think John Sheeran and the group there have done a really good job and we're chasing that. But until until we all decide, right, we've got enough customers, let's work with who we've got and see how we make money, we're going to be in this chase. But I think New York will bring it on fairly quickly because you can't, you can't just keep losing money at that tax rate. You mentioned FanDuel. They have a great product. You know, FanDuel, their software is all in-house. A lot of the stuff they did is, you know, they're not outsourced like DraftKings or, or the, I don't know if your software is. Uh, uh, no, as, as is always. You're in-house as well. So how big is having an in-house software, uh, you know, and, and having actually being able to chart and being able to, you know, to adjust accordingly? Because I think to, to not do that, I think would be it's just an absolutely insane, uh, you know. Call me old school. It'd be but... very difficult. Yeah, I mean, we were really lucky. We we had this joint venture of Entain who bought who bought the sports betting now the sports betting software and MGM who bought the um, the retail properties, the brand in America, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think it, it, on paper it was a merge a merge of two companies that were really important. But yeah, look, to me, there's no doubt the most important thing is ease of navigation and and your own software in terms of trading tools. And, and that's the area where, where I can see we've got room for improvement. I don't think anyone in our business from either the Entain or the MGM side disagree with me. And I think, I think you'll see in the next 12 months some huge change in, in our business because until you get that, then you can reduce the marketing spend and aim for profitability. Beautiful. No, that, I, I think the, the marketing is just, listen, as, and, and again, I'm just, it's my opinion, but it's gotten to the point in which it's, it's, it's getting to be annoying. Like, you know what I mean? If somebody's watching the game, you know, I just keep seeing the same commercials and, 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 and it just, I don't know, they're really shoving it down your throat. And, um, to, and, to and that's where we need to make change first before regulators do and limit. That's happened in other countries. I came from Australia where, where that exactly happened. There was overkill and the uh, rules were made that um, gambling and wagering of businesses weren't allowed to, um, to oper- uh, advertise until after 8 30 night. So, effectively, until after the kids had gone to bed, mm. you're not throwing it down the throats of the under 18s. And as a father of two kids, I understand that. So, I, we need to self moderate as a business before it's forced upon us. 
But again, there's just a race to the top. Everyone wants to try to get get it out there and acquire as many customers. So um, that leads me to another topic, uh, Jason. You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, they talk about problem gambling, and it's just such a, such a a tough topic because you know you know. Let's face it, a lot. Uh, you know, you're problem gamblers. You're trying to stop problem gamblers, but a lot of times, those problem gamblers are your best customers. You know what I mean? For the yeah. most part. So, how do you kind of balance something like that, where you want to, you know, you don't want somebody to, to to bet their house and 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 be homeless, but at the same time, you want to maximize profit. It must be a tough thing to kind of uh, walk that rope. Yeah, look, it's challenging, and as I said, I've been sort of on the on this side of the counter for over a decade now. And operators globally have become much more sympathetic and better than this than what we were. I think when I first came into the game, the, the motto was, let's win every dollar off everyone as quickly as we can. The problem we've got, where it's really difficult is, frankly, we don't really know the, the assets of someone that's betting with us. You know, we can Google their house with all of those things. We can go to LinkedIn and work out what they, what they earn. And I might have a guy betting in that might, might lose a million dollars a year to me. He can afford it, but I might have a heap of people losing $100 a week. And that's the difference between their kids eating properly and not. Um, and those, at that small end, it particularly worries me. We are incredibly strict in terms of any um, communication we get, either through email, chat, or verbally on uh, in our customer service, our VIP department as well. Um, we move very quickly if we see things. We have a, an automated program where we do send out pretty much an OK message to people if we see um, their play changing, their play increasing, uh, bet size, number of bets, et cetera, et cetera. But the groups that come in, and I think we need, look, I think, and I'm pushing for this, we need a national self-exclusion register. So if you exclude from BetMGM, you're excluded everywhere. If you exclude a DraftKings, you're excluded everywhere because... I think what's really unhealthy is that you get somebody who, who, who does, stops betting and excludes himself from one operator. Then in a moment of weakness, see some sort of free bet offer elsewhere, incentive takes that and continues on. And, and I think that's where we've got to get better. Uh, and to me, if you've excluded anywhere, you shouldn't be allowed to bet. It's for your own good. But then you need a centralized database for that. And would anybody, would anybody be willing to maintain that or not share? You know what I mean? Obviously, your database of customers is such a biggest asset. Who's going to want to be able to put in, you know? It has, to, it has to be run by a group funded by the bookmakers that are autonomous because yeah. obviously that data is key and we'd have to trust. And, and the, big, the big bookmakers need to fund it. And the smaller, probably the smaller guys be members and, and contribute where can. But this is where we've got to get to. And I know there are talks about things like this happening um, with, with the bigger players. And obviously, we should have some sort of um, government or regulator help as well. Another problem I've seen, Jason, I'd like you to comment on it. For the, you know, uh, making a deposit is relatively easy uh, across the board. Um, however, making a withdrawal uh, on most of these websites, I'm not talking about yours in particular, but a lot of these websites, it's like uh, searching for a needle in a haystack. Um, and um, after you've made your withdrawal request, there's usually a big button that says cancel withdrawal. Uh, or, you know, it's always, you know, this doesn't help uh, the, the matter. Anything to comment on that part of it? Yeah, look, I think, and I hope we're not too bad, too bad at this. I think a few operators, there are some KYC things that we need to pass before you can bet. 
And I think some people, some of the companies probably don't get all of that information until someone withdraws, whereas we should be getting all of that at, at deposit level. I've, I've heard arguments for and against the cancel withdrawal button. Um, right now we have one, but maybe that's something that we need to, to, to reconsider whether it's it is the the right thing to do for our customers so what's the argument uh you know uh, for it well why would you keep the, the people the people do want to the people do withdraw and then they they see another bet that they want to have um but yeah i take your point i take your point and it's probably something that we should we should push to remove and it's it's probably not the greatest uh it's like I said, it's a fine line you're trying to walk because, yeah. you know, listen, I don't want everybody to cancel their withdrawals if I'm an operator. Um, at the same time, so like, I'm not trying to say that this is something that I wouldn't do either. I wouldn't, you know, but at the same time, yeah. you know, you, you want to, this is guys that can't control themselves. They're like, okay, let me just take my money out now. But then they go to check and sometimes withdrawals, they're not instantaneous, obviously. So you'll go back in and say, oh man, I, I, I got to cancel it. They didn't hit. So let me just cancel and bet on this game or bet on that game. And this could lead to problems. And again, you know, listen, greed is a bitch and everybody wants to extract as much money as possible. But at the same time, you know, you, you want to be able to, to, you know, you got, you got to be fair to the customer. And like you said, avoid this. I think problem gambling yeah. is such a big thing in every, in every, in every country and every, all, all parts of the world. Um, but, you know, especially in America here, you know what I mean? And the lotto and everything, just, it's everywhere. So um, no, no, I agree with you. And I, I, the answer right now is for the operators to, to self-regulate before we're told what to do and what, what's given might be even more difficult and onerous for us to work on than, than if we create our own. I don't think we've done a great job in this country yet as working collegiately as, as, a, as a group of betting operators. I think we should have, I think, and we, we've now sorted that out in the last sort of six to nine to 12 months. But I think, I think together we should have lobbied together. I think we should have worked together. We should have worked this RG thing out as a group because if everyone's got their own policy, it's not going to work. It should be really simple for all of the customers to know. I mean, in those really important areas, they get the same service everywhere. Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said the KYC should happen at the deposit level and it doesn't get completed until the withdrawal level. And and again, th th to me, that's just terrible because, you know what I mean, you want to, in any business, you know, uh, and, and this is an old school bookmaker, not a regulated bookmaker, an illegal bookmaker. He always said, you know, if, if he's running a post-up business, you got to make the withdrawal process just as easy, if not easier than the deposit process. And that's currently not the case. And you can't, you know, when you're taking the money, you're not crying KYC. You can't cry KYC when you're, when you're trying to pay out too. It's just not fair for the customer. Um, you know, uh, in my opinion, at least, I don't know what you, what no, you're no, I agree. Look, I, one, one of the, when I was, was running the business in Australia, I think one of the, the key customer service things is actually works for the operator. If you get known to be the company that pays you withdrawals the fastest, it's a huge positive in terms of attracting deposits. Absolutely. So Lightning. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Lightning fast payouts and, and, um, and, and it's, you know, there's just, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it's tough. You know what I mean? A lot of guys, it's, 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 there's greed involved and, but sometimes, you know, people have to just do the right thing. I think that's what it comes down to this business before any regulation, before anything, this is a gentleman's business. And, and you know that better than anybody, Jason, being in it as long as you have, this is gentlemen. And, and we, when we meet, you know, you book a bet, I place a bet. And if I win, I want to get paid. If I lose, I pay. And of course in the post-up world, I'm, you know, I'm always paying. Right. But, 
to getting paid in a timely manner, I think is such an important step um, in, 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 you know, just, just making this sustainable for everybody and making it enjoyable and, 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 and hearing any type of payout delays is just, it's just unacceptable. No, I agree a hundred percent. Awesome. Jason, this was a great, uh, great, great topic. I, you know, I just want to announce to everybody, Jason is, is, is um, going to be at Bet Bash um, in April. I appreciate it, Jason, for you, uh, for you coming to Bet Bash. It's going to be great. Um, and if anybody wants to see Jason, Jason is very approachable, uh, very nice. He's always uh, answered me and, and, and our communications together. And um, I'm sure there will be a lot of people at Bet Bash that might want to talk to you about their MGM account. Or, I don't know. That <laughs> totally is our conversation. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that's another reason if you want to come to Bet Bash. Listen, Jason, you're a gentleman, and I know you're uh, you want to do the right thing by everybody. And I think you said on a case by case basis, who the hell wants to get triple, triple, and quadruple banged? And you're saying 20 times on the same number. Nobody wants to book that stuff. Um, but at the same time, I think you know you're. you're you're willing to give everybody a fair shake on, on, on a case by case basis. I think, you know, just in talking to you now, you know, listen, I would, I would, you know, nail MGM um, online and I would say things because listen, at the same time, I'm Lynn, I can't bet. And a lot of my friends, you know what I mean? And, you know, just, you know, we, we want to, I, I, I'm doing it not just not to be uh, malicious or to be, uh, you know, just it's critical, but at the same time, I, I just want to make the industry a better place. And, um, and I think with the name of MGM, who historically has been very good, I think that you guys um, have that name that you should be one of the best in, in the business, in the business. No, and- look, I agree. And, uh, you know, from a short time we spent together today, you understand that I, I work, I've worked on both sides of the counter. I understand where we need to get to. And, you know, I also happy to acknowledge that we haven't been perfect at it. We need to improve. Jason, that's, that's, that's all I could ask for. And that's all anybody that could ask for. So we really appreciate you taking the time and, 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 and saying that, and hopefully um, you guys could just keep getting better and better. And I wish you nothing but success before we close, Jason, uh, the name of the podcast is be better betters. Um, I usually ask the guests in closing, if you could give one piece of advice, one, you know, given your tenure in the business and how long you've been on both sides of the counter, what could you tell the listeners, um, whether they're a beginner, pro, semi-pro, what piece of advice can you give them to be better betters? Yeah, look, I think I think it's certainly when you're starting out or you haven't been doing it for a long while or you're a single operator, you need to find your own niche. I think I see far too many customers having far too many bets, far too many sports in far too many different market types. Find an angle that you can win, fine-tune it, get better at it, and, of course, find a staking model that's sustainable that works for you. Uh, I have plenty of customers that, you know, we measure beating the market, as which is effectively closing line value. And I see many customers with 85 90% closing line value who they don't win because they don't know how to manage staking spec. And we've all come across those guys. Wow, what a great! I love it. I don't think we've ever heard this advice, but it's so important. And, and I've seen it so as well, Jason. That some of the smartest people in the world—they'll beat the closing line. They'll know how to win, but they just go busto because they overbet their bankroll. They don't understand how to manage money. Money management is such a key aspect. So, uh, beating, getting the Take best of it. out of it. If you back four losers, it doesn't mean you're any more likely to one to win. You still you got your closing line value. You've got it, you, and you can't just go all in. Can't go all in. Don't press it. Don't try to chase your losses. Such an awesome bit of advice. 
Jason, thank you so much for coming on. It's such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Um, it means the world to me. I um, And um, I can't wait to, to knock down a couple of drinks at Bet Bash with you, my friend. Look forward to it, sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for the time. Until next time.